the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VEPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my co-host Peter Jewell. Hi Pete. How are you Jess? Super looking forward to this interview. Me too. Today we're honoured to be joined by Nicole Gelanis. Nicole is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Nicole specialises in urban affairs, crime and transportation topics and is a contributing editor of City Journal and a columnist at the New York Post. She writes on urban economics and finance. Nicole is also the author of After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. And that's a 2011 publication. She's published analysis and opinion pieces in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and other publications. Before coming to City Journal, she was a business writer. Nicole also holds a BA in English Literature from Tulane University. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon, Peter. I'm very happy to be here with you. And Nicole, what brought you to write about urban affairs? Well, what brought me to write about urban affairs was living in three very different cities in the United States and just observing as an amateur civilian how how different these cities were, not just because of accidents and uh, geography, but also because of urban management and urban gov- urban governance. I grew up just outside of Boston, uh, spent a lot of time in Boston and Cambridge, then went down south to New Orleans for college for four years, and then came up to New York. And as, uh, uh, as Boston and New York were cutting crime in the early 1990s through the mid-90s, uh, adding jobs, trying to diversify their their uh, economies. I was down in New Orleans. You know, the internet was kind of brand new back then, but I was reading the New York and Boston newspapers and just kind of contrasting how different it was from the New Orleans economy with a, a very serious violent crime uh, persisting down there, even as crime fell significantly elsewhere, and also an economy uh, dependent on tourism, low-wage work, uh, very uh, a dearth of opportunity for working-class and middle-class people, and a lot of people leaving New Orleans for opportunity rather than going there at the same time that people were coming to places like New York and Boston for opportunity. So I just got to thinking, you know, what 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 can government do to change the fate of a city, and what are the limitations of what government can do to change the fate of a city? And Nicole, when you're in New Orleans, I believe you worked in what some of our listeners might not know what it is, but a record store. And you were exposed to, uh, in that job, you saw street to street life on a daily basis. Yes, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's how I started to think about violent crime. I mean, my my first week working at the record store in New Orleans, you know, I was a college student, so I was working at the record store part time, 25 hours a week. And one of my colleagues, Kamisha Williams, was uh, shot to death by an acquaintance, not not at the store, but uh, at, at home. And so uh, several of my colleagues uh, drove to Alabama for the funeral. And, you know, that was my first experience of 
sort of realizing, you know, hey, these, these uh, urban issues and violent crime issues are very, very uh, real and can hit home in the blink of an eye and just thought about the very, uh, the, the grim toll that the New Orleans shooting epidemic certainly had uh, on, on residents of that city. So that was really the moment, I guess, of change for you in terms of where and how you started writing a lot about crime. I'm wondering yeah, I think about that's fair transportation to say. as well, because that, that was one of the other areas that you write um, quite extensively on. So what was the inspiration behind um, the transportation side of things? Well, I mean, the city does not run without transportation. I mean, you know, again, we all live life through our personal experience. And when I moved to New York, like many people, I couldn't afford to live in the heart of the city. So I lived out in Brooklyn, not the trendy part of Brooklyn, but the very, very far away part of Brooklyn. So it took me a good hour, a good hour and 15 minutes to come in on the subway to work every day in Manhattan. And I was just kind of uh, got to thinking when I was sitting on the train, why can't this commute be faster? You know, they've got unused express tracks uh, in the middle of this train route. Why aren't they using the express tracks? Why can't we make the investments to make this uh, uh, near century old transit system, bring it into the 21st century? So I just got to reading the MTA's financial statements during some of my downtime, you know, kind of wondering exactly what was going on with the transit system. And I am, I am still reading their statements and still wondering what is going on. Well, well, Nicole, just when, can we just, can you talk to our listeners a bit about living in the down at heel part of Brooklyn, you mentioned, what was sort of presumably in an apartment, what mm -hmm. was the, what was the sort of amenity levels that you experienced in that that location and uh, looking back at that time what things were you struck by well it's a funny thing uh, you know the amenities were pretty good. The only drawback to the neighborhood was the long commute. And, and of course, this was back in the days where we couldn't work at home. I mean, after 9-11, which was 20 years ago this fall, I had to work at home for seven weeks, but it was very difficult to do. It was it was limited. I mean, the, the video capability on the computer was very crude. Uh, cell phone technology was nothing like it is today. I mean, trying to uh, contact sources and write articles up on a home computer and, and with a very slow internet connection and the landline, you know, not something that you could sit back and do for more than a year as we've done during the pandemic. But yeah, in terms of uh, the neighborhood of, of uh, Gravesend Ocean Parkway, uh, plenty of, of good supermarkets, plenty of small shops, you know, the traditional Italian butcher, the uh, the the uh, the the Chinese restaurant to get takeout food on the way home, uh, vegetable stores, fish stores, very nice community. You know, public parks. It actually was not a very long walk to the Atlantic Ocean at Coney Island, but the main thing that uh, kept it uh, 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 sort of at a disadvantage to Manhattan was just the, the kind of antiquity of the subway system, which a lot of people like, by the way. I mean, people, that's another issue is that people can be very suspicious of transit investments because they are fearful that it will make property more valuable. And if they don't own the property, that they'll be priced out, which can be true. Yeah, that's a very good point. 
Um, now, Nicole, can you also tell our listeners a little bit about City Journal? Obviously, we know a little bit about it, but a lot of others probably don't. So it would be worthwhile just giving a little bit of a background on that. Sure. City Journal and your listeners can feel free to take a look at themselves at city-journal.org is the quarterly magazine publication put out by the Manhattan Institute, which is an urban affairs think tank, been around for a little bit more than 40 years now, tends to lean toward the free market and the conservative side, although, you know, who knows what conservative even means anymore. I mean, that's certainly a, a topic up for debate since the the Trump years, but basically uh, the Manhattan Institute and City Journal a few years later came into being when New York City was undergoing a time of great crisis in the late 1970s through the 80s. Uh, crime was soaring. Uh, the murder rate had tripled between the early 60s and, and early 70s and never went back down. Uh, jobs were fleeing the city. The city uh, uh, lost its, its manufacturing jobs based its white collar headquarters job space uh, wasn't clear at the time that we would be able to replace those jobs with finance and later tech jobs and uh, budget problems. I mean, the city spent more than its means, uh, got in, uh, into trouble, was near bankrupt in the mid-1970s. So the Manhattan Institute was created to try to think of new solutions and new ways to address all of those problems. And City Journal uh, came along about 15 years later uh, to try to make these things fun to read to the extent that anything having to do with urban policy can be fun to read. You know, they're not, they're not supposed to be dry academic papers that kind of bore people to death. I mean, we, we try to sneak the policy in into a, a readable article with a lot of personal stories. I, I can certainly vouch for that, uh, Nicole. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure to read. It's a quarterly and also the Manhattan Institute uh, releases the 10 Blocks podcast, uh, which runs for, about, I think, the 10 Blocks represents, uh, I think the length of the podcast is about 20 minutes or so, which is how long it takes to walk 10 blocks. I believe that's the case. But can you also yeah. talk a bit about the podcast 10 Blocks? Yeah, and thank you for your kind words, Peter. Yeah, the podcast, uh, something that our editors generally moderate, either uh, Brian Anderson, Seth Barron has unfortunately moved on in the past couple of months to another magazine, but he was one of the uh, the most uh, beloved moderators. And, you know, have a guest on for the, the 20 minutes and tackle one or two urban issues in the podcast format, whether it's the upcoming mayoral race uh, we'll be voting for mayor here in New York City in less than two months time or some of the uh, problems and, and frankly crises that came up during the pandemic whether it was the murder rate uh, rising by 40% last year uh, or uh, the loss of a million jobs and we're still missing more than 600,000 jobs and so you know back at this time last year like last March April May it seemed like a new thing was happening every single day and usually that new thing was not a good thing that, that's 600,000 jobs you mentioned that's in New York mm -hmm. mm. Uh, also uh, America's got a history of think tanks I believe Nicole what other urban affairs think tanks do you look to 
for uh, in interest in, in the states? Well, most states or cities have at least a small think tank focused on their own state's issues or their own uh, cities within that state issue. So Illinois, for example, has the Illinois Policy Institute. Uh, Massachusetts has the Pioneer Institute. Uh, you'll see in, uh, the, you know, sort of generally uh, the run of think tank issues, whether it's are taxes in the state too high? Are we driving away business? What does the regulatory landscape uh, look like? So generally, uh, because we tend to be so focused on our own state and our own city, it's very useful to get these emails a few times a week from these fellow think tanks and say, you know, oh, look, what's what's going on with Illinois' uh, pension funds only being a third funded? Or what does the Detroit bankruptcy uh, in Michigan uh, with the Mackinac Institute there, what, what does the Detroit bankruptcy, what kind of implications does that have for state and local finances in some place like New York City? So, you know, usually, uh, we're fortunate enough to be able to travel to other places. I mean, I've learned a lot from visiting Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, uh, place, uh, Kansas City. Over the past year, not being able to travel, just getting these emails and getting a taste of what's going on in other cities and states becomes even more important. I mean, I suppose that's one of the great things about the, the, the states, uh, America, in that you've got all these different laboratories going on in the different states so things can be tried and experiments can flourish is that fair yeah and it is i mean i know it's a little bit of a cliche but it is very different i mean places that i thought i wouldn't like i've actually liked a lot more uh and been surprised you know a place like the woodlands texas for example uh, not very far from houston if you come from a city like new york you think well houston everyone's going to just be driving anywhere there won't be any human scale neighborhoods but the woodlands which is ironically the hometown of exxon uh, very walkable, uh, built around uh, walking and cycling. You know, there's a little canal through all of these uh, apartment developments. You know, I wouldn't say it's it's quite like uh, Venice or Amsterdam, but was uh, I would certainly look forward to going back to a place like the Woodlands after the after the pandemic has receded. But yes, you do. You learn a lot from visiting places, even if you just go for a day to go speak at a conference and just are able to take a walk for an hour after your after your speech is over. And so that that is certainly a real loss that these uh, Zooms uh, in podcasts, though very valuable, they don't make up for actually going to see a place in person. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Speaking of Nicole, you recently wrote um, an article about a year living in deserted New York. What did that do to the psyche? And can you tell us about your experience through that COVID period? Yeah, I'm a little bit unusual in that 
uh, I live really right in the core of Midtown Manhattan. If your listeners are familiar with Manhattan, basically, you know, a, a hundred odd square blocks of the island are reserved for business and tourism purposes. You know, the skyscrapers, the Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center, all of the Broadway theaters, uh, the, some of the city's best and most expensive restaurants, all kind of crammed into the block south of Central Park. And it's pretty much been empty. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that foot traffic is a, a very, very small fraction of what it is normally. People are not coming to their offices to work. Uh, the latest estimate uh, said that about 10% of office workers are back at their desks. And of course, with the border still pretty much closed and people reluctant to travel domestically, there's not very much tourism and not much of a reason to come. I mean, people should of course come if they want to, but with Broadway closed, uh, all live entertainment still essentially closed, sporting events only just starting to open up over the past few weeks. Uh, so we are missing uh, two out of the three sources of our foot traffic. The, the business uh, office workers and the tourists. And without those two groups of people, the people who actually live in Midtown Manhattan are, are not really enough to support the, the businesses, the restaurants and uh, uh, retail shops here. Yeah, Nicole, you posed the question in an article for City Journal in May 2020, Manhattan needs its people back, but do people need Manhattan? What's your updated thoughts? I think they do need Manhattan, but it, it is very tricky for the city to make sure that it doesn't let Manhattan deteriorate before people figure out that they do need Manhattan. So, I mean, for example, I don't think people are all that happy working at home five days a week. Maybe in the future, and in fact, most likely in the future, yes, people might work at home one or two days a week. They might not be uh, chained to an eight hour or a nine hour day at an office. You know, if, if their child has a recital or a doctor's appointment, or they just uh, don't want to deal with the commute on a rainy or snowy day, maybe they work that day at home or they work half that day at home. But the idea of sitting in your house 100% uh, of the time, not having uh, personal interactions with your colleagues, not being able to go and get a bite to eat and see Grand Central and do a little shopping and maybe go to a museum or a bar or a restaurant after work, uh, meet your friends after work, particularly important for younger people who don't have uh, uh, spouses or children yet. Uh, I think all of that is necessary. I mean, we've never in human history have people sat in their own houses and not seen anybody and it will come back. It's just that the, the difficult part for, part for the city is that when people are away, a vacuum kind of fills this empty space and, you know, in terms of uh, quality of life concerns with the city not managing population of addicted individuals, mentally ill individuals who tend to make up, up the Manhattan uh, homeless population. Of course, the first priority is you want to get help for those people, but also the presence of uh, 
antisocial behavior can deter people from coming back to work. So we, and of course the rising uh, crime rate, mostly not in Manhattan, but if you're, if you are working in, in the suburbs or uh, in a different state, just reading these articles may make you pause before coming back. So I think the difficult thing is just to keep up the quality of life before people realize, you know, hey, I'm bored at home, I'm missing out on, on uh, a lot of interactions at work, and maybe I'll brave the subway or brave the commuter rail and come back to the office. I think a conversation that a lot of people in a lot of, um, in, a, in a lot of different countries and cities are having at the moment is how these COVID conditions or post-COVID conditions, I should say, um, are going to affect our rate of density across cities. And I mean, obviously New York was for many years and still is to a certain degree, held up as an example of how that high density and good levels of amenity can coincide. How do you see that playing out into the future? I think people will always crave some level of density. You know, I know that many people like living a car-based lifestyle. Uh, it, it's sometimes easier to drive a car to the supermarket and pack your groceries in the back of the car and drive home. And the U.S. certainly has many, many opportunities for people who want to live with uh, most of their transportation done by private passenger vehicle. But New York is never going to be one of those places. I mean, just a matter of physics constrains how many cars and trucks we can have on the on the narrow streetscape. Uh, but the good news is there have always been people who don't want that car lifestyle. Uh, you know, people who want to walk most places, uh, cycle most places, uh, hop on a subway and be able to read a book during their commute rather than watching out for uh, other bad drivers. And so, and of course, and the entertainment options that a dense city offers cannot be replicated in a in a less dense environment. I mean, Broadway only works because people come from all over the world to see Broadway shows. It doesn't work if the only audience is people who live in in the tri-state area. So there'll there'll always be both a business, a a lifestyle, and an entertainment benefit to density. Nicole, uh, 2020 was a pretty rugged year in lots of ways, but uh, and one part of that in New York was the rioting and looting. Um, how big a shock was that to you to see parts of your hometown uh, experiencing that sort of civil unrest? Yeah, I do have to say it was very shocking. I mean, living here for 22 years, I've seen a lot, uh, but I did. I never would have thought I would have seen blocks and blocks of midtown Manhattan just covered over with plywood because the uh, building owners and the store owners were worried about rioting, whether it was after the initial uh, protests, after the killing of George Floyd last May. Of course, uh, people have an impulse to go out and peacefully uh, protest, which many, many people did around the country. But we've seen uh, both a small and militant subset of those protests, as well as people who don't care about the broader issues at all, that just kind of take advantage of this uh, chaos, you know, to, to steal uh, high-priced goods from expensive stores. So we saw a round of rioting uh, early last summer. 
Uh, so we had, you know, broken windows at Macy's at Rockefeller Center and so forth. And then again, uh, before the presidential election, the city was essentially boarded up again because business owners were worried about rioting. That time, of course, the rioting didn't happen. But just the fact that they had to worry about it, something we've never seen in modern times in, in New York before. And I do think that has very bad implications for the future. If this is just something that happened once, uh, it will recede in, in memory. But it, if, if it is something that the city is going to tolerate again and again in the future, uh, store owners will think twice before, do I make this investment again? And office workers too will think, I don't want to get caught up in something like this. So I, I will just, uh, work at home for election week or for a week of, of whatever is going on. So it, it makes uh, Manhattan less predictable, uh, but in a bad way. And of course, does nothing to help uh, people who are at risk of police violence, uh, people, uh, people without work or within, with inadequate work. Uh, if, if central cities, offer fewer job opportunities, fewer educational opportunities. Uh, it, it just leaves more people unemployed and without a way to get ahead. And Nicole, just thinking about getting back to a growth situation within Manhattan, what do you think are the fundamental steps that the city government needs to take in order to um, return to that, um, or sorry, to achieve, I should say, post-COVID recovery? I think that the mayor, uh, you know, Mayor Bill de Blasio, although uh, I have many differences with the mayor, he's not wrong to say some of this will be fixed by time. People will want to go back to the office. Employers will start demanding that people go back as uh, kind of social ties that we are all running this on start to fray. I mean, the only reason that work at home has worked reasonably well is that we know our colleagues we've had a long history with them uh, you don't want to be working with people that you've never met so obviously if this went on long enough that's that's what you would effectively be doing uh, but I do think the city has to make it clear it's not going to tolerate any type of uh, looting or disruptive uh, illegal protesting and uh, people cannot choose to live on the streets and to do drugs on the streets. If a person is unable to make that decision for himself or, or herself, then yes, we, we do need to take advantage of laws that allow us to place, uh, to get people help uh, involuntarily in a, in a hospital situation. But we, we cannot uh, allow the type of disorder that kind of defined the 1970s and 1980s to take over the central cities again. Mm. And, and that leads us, uh, Nicole, to talking about safe streets. Uh, obviously, they're important to citizens and tourists to have confidence. How has uh, Jane Jacobs inspired your thinking on this topic? And for those listeners who don't know about Jane Jacobs, but I suppose, can you also uh, just give us a little brief background on her? Sure. Uh, Jane Jacobs' book, uh, Death and Life of American Cities, came out in 1961. So it'll actually turn 60, uh, 60 years old if I'm doing my on the fly uh, math right. And she, you know, to make a long story short, she pointed out that cities are 
adaptable, but we have to let them adapt. In other words, you know, when, when she was living in and observing New York City roughly from the, the uh, post-war era in the 1950s to 1968 when she moved to Toronto, uh, the city was undergoing drastic destabilizing change, you know, losing manufacturing jobs, uh, losing a lot of the middle-class population, uh, being home to a new working class population, but without enough uh, jobs for the new working class. And some of the impulses of the city leaders and the state leaders were not so good. I mean, if, if, uh, if factory buildings and warehouses in Soho, south of Greenwich Village were obsolete, just tear them down and build a highway. We weren't going to be using those buildings again. Or if uh, housing, you know, brownstone housing or small scale uh, tenement apartments, if these were uh, too old and past their useful purpose, just tear them down and be, be, uh, build big uh, housing projects and just sort of reshuffle people against their will around the city. Uh, those things just further destabilized the city. And so Jane Jacobs, you know, successfully killed the highway across lower Manhattan, made a big, big difference. Um, if that highway had gone through, we would not have the Soho and the Greenwich Village that we have today. And she, she never said, we don't want any new housing. We don't want any change in our neighborhood. But she said, the neighborhoods have to help plan this new housing. You know, when the city proposed massive uh, housing projects in, in the village, uh, the village came back and said, Here's, here is the housing that we want to build. build. Yes, it will be, be dense. Yes, it will be affordable, but it will not be on the scale that will just completely overshadow our neighborhood. So letting cities adapt to the new reality often works much better than saying, okay, this is the new reality. We are going to tear stuff down and put stuff up. And it may turn out that th those protections were completely wrong. And, and Jane talked very much about street life, didn't she, uh, Nicole, and the importance of sort of eyes on the street and people enjoying the public domain? Yes, uh, and that is also very important. I mean, and sometimes in in all of the talk about policing, uh, we expect the police to do too much. Police are not the first line of defense against public disorder. They're really not even the second line of defense. You want to have uh, eyes on the street in, as you said, in, in Jane Jacobs' uh, term, so that a child walking to school has uh, multiple uh, parents or grandparents of his friends to watch him on his on his walk to school. A uh, store owner may may look out for the the elderly woman who has trouble crossing the street. If there are a lot of people on the street, even if they don't know each other, someone is much less tempted to say, well, it's, it's just uh, me and, and this little old man walking down the street, so I'll knock him down and, and grab his wallet. It may not be because he's a, a, it, it, it's turned him into a good person, but the crowd uh, keeps people from being tempted to, uh, to commit some of these uh, criminal acts. So you know, your first line of defense against disorder is just having a lot of people around uh, to deter disorder and crime. And we see that on the subways. I mean, with, with subway ridership, a fraction of it, of what it normally is, 
a lot of people have been, not a lot, but uh, enough to be worrisome, a number of people have been tempted to commit uh, crime against the only other person standing on the subway platform. So it's very, very hard to police yourself out of these problems. Yes, you need policing, and yes, it has to be uh, proportional, uh, lawful uh, policing, but for the most part, a healthy community polices itself, and that's, that goes across uh, ethnic groups and, and income levels, as, as we've seen over time. Yeah, Nicole, with the, with the crime stats, I, I believe that, you know, when people say crime doesn't discriminate, do you think that's a fair statement or is it concentrated in certain segments of, of communities? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, crime does discriminate. If you if you the the uh, the city puts out numbers every year, uh, well over ninety percent of uh, both the perpetrators of serious violent crimes and the victims of serious violent crimes, uh, first of all, are men. Uh, you know. Uh, 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 obviously, most men are are not uh, violent and not criminals, but violent crime tends to be the purview of of men. So the first place that crime discriminates is is has nothing to do with uh, ethnicity or race. It's it's really just the uh, gender disparity. But yes, uh, you know, for various reasons that we could talk about for hours, uh, uh, crime tends to occur in lower income socioeconomic communities and in the US at that at the moment those communities tend to be a minority communities so you see uh, just as uh, you know, 70 years ago, the people involved in, in gangs and in violence might have been uh, Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants to New York City. Uh, we see the same thing happen with the, the, uh, the lower income socio socioeconomic minorities in the city. And what that means is if you don't keep guns off the streets, if you don't uh, take someone who was already committed a shooting and make sure that he can't commit another shooting, the victims tend to be disproportionately lower income black and Hispanic communities in terms of uh, uh, women and children hit by uh, stray bullets and, and some of the other tragedies we've seen over the past year. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. Nicole, one of the other topics that you um, have written quite extensively about is this broken window theory. Um, which is a sort of criminological theory, I guess, that states that the visible signs of crime being antisocial behaviour and civil disorder, graffiti, all those sorts of things, um, that they create an urban, urban environment that encourages further crime and disorder. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with that? Do you, what's, the, what's the relevance, I guess, in the context of the Manhattan um, context? Sure, the theory is certainly sound, but like all theories, it's not an answer to every question and it can be 
misused and abused. I mean, as, as you note, Jess, uh, the original uh, idea, which George Kelling uh, and James Q. Wilson uh, wrote up for an Atlantic article uh, close to 40 years ago now was, if, if someone is uh, walking down the street, they see an abandoned building with a window broken, uh, they may go ahead and throw a rock and break another window. You know, why not? No one, no one cares enough about the property or the neighborhood to go and fix a window once it's been broken. So, you know, again, the first thing here is that policing is not the initial answer to this situation. In a healthy neighborhood with most of the stores, uh, retail stores, restaurants, homes, offices, fully occupied, if someone comes along and breaks a window or scrawls uh, uh, graffiti on a, a wall, the owner or the tenant will come and say, okay, I got to fix my window. And so the disorder will not last very long. Uh, policing really uh, comes in when the neighborhood has already started to fail beyond a certain point of equilibrium. You know, for example, uh, the South Bronx in, in the 1970s, what, which lost 20% of its population in just a decade. Uh, the, uh, uh, apartments were uh, abandoned, you know, squatters, uh, squatters, tenants, and property owners set fire to apartments for all different reasons, uh, ranging from wanting insurance payoffs on the part of some of the owners to just accidental fires on the part of some of the drug dealers or, or drug users who squatted in some of these buildings. So once you've reached that point, the neighborhood cannot fix itself. You, you need a uh, much more assertive government presence, including a police uh, presence, which of course comes with problems of its own. Uh, but the, the, the point is, we should not allow neighborhoods to get to that point. And some of these broken windows uh, techniques, for example, uh, if you if you stop a person who is jumping over the subway turnstile uh, and it turns out that that person is carrying a gun or knife, you've prevented a larger crime in uh, preventing a small crime. Doesn't mean that people should go to prison for jumping over the turnstile. It still should be a civil offense where you, you pay a fine. Doesn't mean that people should be... Uh, over-policed for using uh, marijuana on the street or uh, open containers of alcohol and so forth. But yes, you, you do need to uh, have some level of policing, particularly in neighborhoods that are just not healthy enough to police themselves, whether because they've lost residents uh, during the 70s and 80s or during the pandemic, there is just not enough natural foot traffic to police these neighborhoods. And Nicole, you've also written a lot about transportation. Things were looking pretty good in New York uh, before the uh, before COVID. Uh, can you outline to our listeners the positives that that the situation was at and how this came about? Yeah, I mean, it, before COVID hit in March of 2020, uh, New York had a record number of private sector jobs. We had 4 million jobs, uh, actually close to 30% more jobs than the city had in 1990. And that was across all different skill levels, language levels. I mean, you could, you could have just arrived in New York City yesterday for 
from, uh, from Ecuador or from Ghana and have no language skills or limited language skills and go get a job in a restaurant or in a hotel. Uh, and on the other end, you could be a seven or eight figure financial or tech figure and also find uh, opportunities in New York City. So a sort of gamut of jobs across all income levels, uh, public schools doing better than they had in, in decades in terms of student uh, performance, and a close to record low murder level. Uh, the murder uh, number of murders a year had steadily declined from 2,200 murders a year in 1990 to just around 300 murders over the past few years. And so, you know, there's a lot for us to build on as, as we recover from the pandemic, but we can't lose sight of some of what made the city healthy over those decades that we were doing well. Obviously, again, and this is, I think, across the board in, in a lot of cities, um, public transport usage did decline significantly during COVID, but um, what we have started to see, I think, um, particularly in Melbourne as well, is the re-emergence, I guess you'd say, of the micro-mobility, so things like bike hire and bike share systems. Have you seen a similar um, trend within Manhattan and, and what, are, what have been the advantages of those systems? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly nothing good about the pandemic, but one of, one of the things we can at least seize on and rebuild on is so many people have taken to using bikes, whether it's their own bike, whether it's the municipal city bike bike share, whether it's an electric bike or an old fashioned bike, you know, people riding around on, uh, on scooters, skateboards, uh, people have uh, been very ingenious in getting themselves around to go visit friends, go shopping, go to work if they're working in person without relying on the subways and buses. And that's because, or in large part, because over the past 10 years, the city has been doing a reasonable job of building new protected bike lanes, uh, new uh, pedestrian plazas, building out the bike share system, which is now almost 10 years old, started in 2013. So people had those options when they weren't comfortable in riding on the subway. So I think that's something that we can build on. I mean, certainly we want to get people back on the subways and buses, but can, can they be slightly less crowded than they were in 2018, 2019, more pleasant for the people people on the subways and buses and gives gives people a recreational option if they want to get to work in a different way. Nicole, on, of comparable big cities you know and have experienced, which do you most admire and which particular aspects of those cities would you like to incorporate into New York? Well, you know, I, I want to first caveat that my personal experience may be limited. You know, as I was saying before, I would love to visit uh, some of the Australian cities, what love to visit uh, uh, Japan uh, and uh, Korea. Uh, so, you know, my experience before the pandemic was kind of limited to the US and Western Europe. But of those places, 
I think uh, Paris, of course, has done a terrific job in building out a bike lane system where almost everyone feels safe in riding a bike along a main street, which is really not the case yet in New York. I mean, we still have quite a while to go if we compare ourselves to a place like Paris. And I think London has done a good job, too, in, in, in uh, reliable, safe, clean transit service on, on the tube, much faster bus service uh, in reserving whole lanes of the street just for buses. And as we've uh, gone through this pandemic, they are finishing the Crossrail project to basically expand their mass transit capacity by 10%. And so uh, those are things that uh, New York can look to and emulate. One of the um, other podcasts that we did uh, just recently with Michael Hendricks and John Myers was looking at this idea of the hyperlocal um, zoning movement within, um, within America in particular. Um, are there other particular experiments, I guess, that, um, that you're aware of or that you um, have come up with yourself that you'd like to see tried in city spaces? I think the idea, and you know, it, it fits in with some of what Michael was saying about uh, hyperlocal zoning, of what we did in the Jane Jacobs years and saying, okay, you're not going to get away in a rich neighborhood with not building any more housing. But if you don't like the plan the city is proposing, come back and propose your own plan. You know, instead of a 30-story building in one place, maybe you build two 10-story buildings in different locations that the city hasn't looked at or instead of building uh, 3,000 units, maybe you compromise on uh, a lower number of housing units or spread it out over a longer time frame and telling people, no, you can't say no, but you can come to us with a counter offer gives uh, people a little bit more control over, you know, they see uh, the, the larger entities of government kind of running roughshod over them. And I think another place we've experimented with uh, reasonably well during the pandemic is the outdoor dining. Uh, I know most people can't come to the city and see it for themselves, but the streets and avenues are kind of lined with outdoor restaurants, tables and chairs integrating that into the normal streetscape so that they're not all kind of crammed onto the sidewalk and in the bike lane, but yet there's still, you know, three lanes of car traffic. I think that's something the city can build on and do a better job with. And Nicole, if you had time off uh, to do like a pure research project investigation, what would you, uh, what would you, what would you look into? Well, I am, I am writing a book about the last 60 years worth of transportation history in New York City. And I learned a lot of interesting things that I, I had never thought about before. Um, you know, for example, uh, we, from just after World War I, so, you know, roughly say 1920 or so, up until the late 1960s, New York was kind of in the automobile age. So we spent this 50 years uh, built, trying to accommodate the car, uh, building more highways, more lanes of traffic, chopping down uh, sidewalks, 
uh, making avenues one way so the cars can go faster, not investing in the transit system. And people tend to focus on that as what define New York and kind of understandable. I mean, all that stuff is very important. You know, the Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs battles of the 1960s. But we tend to neglect the fact that we've now had 50 years of the post-automobile age. I mean, since Mayor Lindsay in 1969, he, he said we would not build uh, highways across Manhattan. We haven't built a mile of new highway in 50 years, and we've actually taken away some miles of highway. So there's a lot of important history there that, you know, in, in sort of obsessing over the non-recent past, we tend to forget we've done a lot of very interesting things over the last 50 years too, whether it's uh, uh, Jeanette Sadekan pedestrianizing Times Square, uh, building out the bike lanes, the city building some protected bike uh, bus lanes in following London's lead, and getting the number of traffic deaths down. I mean, in 1990, we had 701 traffic deaths. Now we have a little bit more than 200 every year which is still far too many, but it's a significant accomplishment that can be overlooked. Now, Nicole, we're just coming to the end of our podcast now, unfortunately, but um, we wanted to ask you, are there particular words that you live by that might be a phrase or a saying? Um, I would say keep an open mind. I mean, the things that we think we know, uh, maybe we do not know. I don't think anyone... Uh, or maybe uh, some people have, and I just missed them, could have predicted the unfolding of the pandemic in exactly the way that it has gone month by month by month in a place like New York City. I mean, for example, if the murder rate were down 40% rather than up 40%, uh, we would we would be sitting here saying, well, of course the murder rate is down 40%. Who's thinking about uh, engaging in violent crime when they're worried about their their personal health? I mean, whatever actually happens, there's always an obvious answer. But how do we how do we get to uh, the non obvious answer for why things are happening or not happening? Mm. That's a great way of looking at things. And Nicole. You've got a very busy life. How do you refresh and relax? Uh, you know, I, I'll be frank and say it's not, it's not that easy when you are essentially stuck in one place. And of course, I am by no means complaining. I know that I am much, much more fortunate than many people around the world, whether they've suffered uh, illness or the death of a loved one and, and so forth. But in, an, in a normal environment, a lot of uh, uh, refreshment and relaxation is just going to a new city and, and seeing how another place uh, does things, whether better or worse than New York City. And also, you know, going to the beach, sitting out on the beach and reading a book for a week in South Carolina, you know, uh, for now, I've got my very modest New York City uh, backyard, but it's certainly better than nothing. Now, um, we're coming to podcast extra or culture corner. Nicole, something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced that you think our listeners might be interested in? Well, I think for people who are interested in, in doing some more reading to add to all of the reading everyone has done over the past 13 months, I'm sure many people have read uh, Robert Cairo's The Power Broker 
excellent uh, socio-political explanation of New York from the 1930s through the 1970s. If you want to sort of graduate beyond the power broker, Empire on the Hudson uh, by uh, uh, Jim Doig, uh, another excellent book about the other public authority. Everyone talks about the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Uh, Empire on the Hudson tackles the Port Authority. So uh, people w interested in how and why and when we got infrastructure like the George Washington Bridge. Uh, that's a good book to read. Uh, Wreck of the Penn Central, a chronicle of the, the bankruptcy of the private sector, American railroads in, again, another thing that happened in the 1970s. So that's another, uh, another good book. And some, you know, I, they may be hard to get in Australia, but some of the very intensely political books like City for Sale, uh, Wayne Barrett's account of the Ed Koch administration, uh, some of the corruption that afflicted uh, Koch's appointees during the 1980s, you know, get into some of these details and kind of it, you find out why isn't my theory working? It's because practical considerations sometimes override the theory mm, or human, often do. Mm, human nature. And, and Jess? your podcast extra well i would i would also like to recommend city journal because that's something that i have started reading recently in preparation for a couple of interviews that we've done now with the manhattan institute so um a wonderful publication as nicole mentioned earlier released quarterly so highly recommend that um but i've also started reading and i'm only just in the very initial stages of reading a new book um, by Glennon Doyle, Untamed. And it's sort of one of these ones that's been doing the rounds of book clubs and quite a few of my friends have recommended to me. So um, that's a really, really interesting one about um, sort of a femi feministic um, take on, on life really, but it's about, you know, trusting yourself enough to um, set boundaries and making peace with body, your body and honouring anger and heartbreak and all these sorts of things. So it's, it's quite a, quite a, a, a good read. Um, as I said, I'm only in the initial stages of it, but I look forward to reporting back on that in the next um, podcast, Pete. How about you? Uh, I'm enthralled by John Singer Sargent, the uh, American painter who lived in France and England for many years at the late 19th century and early 20th century. I've just come across him. I saw a TV program on Tate Walks where uh, you follow the footsteps of the artist and some of his portraiture is uh, astounding. Nicole, I don't know whether you know uh, John Singer-Sargent. Um, have you come across yeah, him? There was a, a Sargent exhibit at the Met, oh, a few years back, uh, oh, which was excellent. But they've got some permanent portraits that he uh, did as well. So I'll look... Uh, you, you just reminded me to get back there soon before they go to 50% capacity instead of 25 <laughs> and it's annoyingly crowded again. Uh, I, I think that could have been his charcoal works, but his, uh, his portraits, Jess, the, the, the subjects just stare back at you directly in the eye. And it's, it's, it's incredible, the realism, but uh, just, just experiencing some, the talent and the, the, the deep qualities of some of painters. Um, it's exhilarating. Nicole, you've been a wonderful, wonderful guest transporting us all the way to New York from uh, Melbourne on the other side of the world. So thank you so much. And I do urge listeners to uh, subscribe to 10 Blocks 
the great podcast and on that you hear Nicole occasionally. So Nicole, thank you so much. And Jess, always great doing podcasts with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, thank Nicole. you, Peter. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Kate.